0: Once again, Satan utters what becomes a philosophical commonplace, which is totally nonsensical, circular, and rotten at its core, but it sounds good. And that's what makes the satanic figure so compelling uh, for so many.
1: Greetings, greetings, everyone. Uh, my name is David DeWayne. I'm your host and the president of the Mouse Book Club. Today, we have an awesome discussion. We will be talking about Paradise Lost by John Milton. And we could not ask for a better guest. We are being joined by Stanley Fish, who has been a leading intellectual in the United States for 50 plus years, but he's also a top flight Milton expert. He first made his mark on Milton scholarship with the 1967 landmark book, Surprised by Sin. And then in 2001, followed that up with the book, How Milton Works, which collected more than 50 years worth of scholarship on Milton into what is really a magnum opus by somebody who really knows the subject inside and out. But for me, this conversation is really special because Stanley is just a great teacher. You can feel the energy. You can feel the joy radiating from him as he discusses a subject he's so passionate about. So please enjoy this conversation.
2: Thanks so much. Um, Greetings everybody again. uh, My name is Brian Chappell. I'm the editor of Mouse Books. We're so grateful to have Professor Stanley Fish uh, with us this evening. The first question that we ask all of our guests is, can you tell us about how you first became inspired by Milton, and what about his work sustains your interest after more than five decades?
0: Well, it starts off as a very pedestrian story. Uh, I never took a Milton course in my life. Uh, I didn't take it as an undergraduate. And when I got to graduate school, I started a Milton course, uh, but I didn't like what the instructor was saying or doing, so I dropped it. Uh, So uh, I came to my first job at the University of California at Berkeley as a medievalist. But then in the spring of my second year, one of the resident Miltonists who had been scheduled to teach a course received a grant unexpectedly. And the department needed someone to step in and teach his Milton course. So I was asked to do that. And I was uh, too frightened to say that I had never had any Milton. Uh, and aside from some reading of, Paradise Lost, that I had done preliminary to my doctoral exams, I didn't know anything. So I accepted the assignment, and then I dismissed the class for the first three weeks. This was a class made up of senior English majors and first-year graduate students. So I dismissed the class for the first three weeks on the pretext that they were going to do some research on a few topics that I was able uh, to think up. And meanwhile, in those three weeks, I furiously read everything I could. And of course, furiously read Milton. So that's how I became a Miltonist, because I was too scared to tell my department chairman um, that I had never taken a Milton class. But the end of the story uh, is that I became hooked, uh, which is not surprising, because that's what uh, Miltonic verse does. It draws you in. Um, It uh, asks for from you responses and counter responses uh, that get you personally uh, and intimately involved uh, with the issues uh, that are being presented uh, in the poetry. So that by the end of that semester, uh, I still was by no means a Miltonist uh, far from it, but I was certainly hooked.
2: Thank you so much. Um, you, you, you may be aware that we're, we're publishing our edition of Paradise Lost is part of a broader series on the concept of hell in literature. So we're publishing Milton alongside Homer and Virgil, as well as Dante. And one of the most compelling things, of course, about Paradise Lost, and many of our readers are probably brand new to to this poem, is the character of Satan, um, who's one of the most memorable characters in all of English literature. Uh, What, in your opinion, makes him so compelling? And how might his predicament and his response to his predicament speak to us in our lives today?
0: Well, first of all, uh, Satan is compelling on a superficial level, uh, because that's, in fact, what he is, a series of surfaces or a series of signs. So it's not surprising that his attractiveness, uh, at least for readers of the poem, is largely verbal. It's a function of what he can do with the language, the linguistic resources that he can deploy. Uh, for all all kinds of ends. And these resources uh, and his uh, deployment of them pull the reader in. That's what makes him compelling. Now, what happens in the course of the poem, at least this is my argument, is that the reader becomes educated by the verse in such a way that he can begin, he or she, can begin to see through devices uh, and strategies that early on in the poem would have taken him in. Uh, So by let's say book uh, nine and 10, eight, nine and 10, the satanic figure has lost a great deal of his allure, but that allure is real. At least it's presented by Milton in the first two books, especially of the poem. Uh, It's not unqualified. The epic voice warns over and over again against falling to the seductiveness of uh, of satanic reasoning Um, but that warning you know don't believe these guys trying to pull the wool over your eyes uh, is really uh, not much of an antidote to someone who can skillfully pull the wool over your eyes uh, which is uh, what Milton's Satan does. How does he do it? Largely he does it by speaking nonsense but the nonsense sounds good unless you take a second and a third and perhaps even a fourth look. And at one point when he's rallying his fallen angels, that is the, the crowd that he has led to defeat uh, and who have, uh, whose members have fallen into hell and now are stretched out on a burning lake. And he has the rhetorical task of trying to reassemble them in a way that restores their confidence. So what does he do? Among other things, he tells them that they're going to succeed. He has a particular way of putting it. He says, if you follow me, and then here's the line, you will be sure to prosper than prosperity could have assured us. You got that? now That's total nonsense. Because what he's saying is, you'll be more prosperous than you would be if you were prosperous. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But, but how does it work? It works because it's really a a dance of of, con, of of vowels. It's really the work that's done in this line is done by the vowel you. Surer to prosper than prosper and, and e. prosperity could have assured us. So you have figures of speech. Uh, sure and assured and prosper and prosperity are put in relationships of contiguity to one another. Um, And uh, then uh, you have the consonants and assonants. uh, That is sounds that go together that in fact, make the line up and deliver its force in a way that may prevent you from saying, uh, as I'm uh, as I've been saying to you, what the hell does that mean? Sure to prosper than prosperity could have assured us. So that's one way uh, he does it. He also does it uh, when he utters some famous lines, which people have always loved. And maybe some of you guys love, love these lines too. At a certain point when he is considering his own situation, he's lost the battle. He and his compatriots Uh, lying on a burning lake, how can he then convince himself uh, that he can uh, overcome uh, his present situation? And here's the answer he comes up with. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. And then the third line is what matter where if I be still the same. Now, again, that sounds really good. And a lot of people quote that for various purposes in an approving way. But the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Notice that the assertion of the similarity of hell and heaven is supported by the alliteration of hell and heaven. But notice too, that if hell and heaven can be created in an instant, by an act of the will, will of the mind, neither of them has any stability at all. That is, if the mind can create hell or heaven, then in any any of its instances their instantiations, hell and heaven, are mental entities uh, projected by the imagination. It's, so, what the epic voice, for what the satanic voice is really proclaiming, is a total instability. Everything keeps changing and shifting uh, according to. The words he uses to describe it. Then the third line, what matter where? That what ma- what matter, what does it matter where, where I am, if I be still the same? But the idea of a constant I, someone who survives this process, this process of being protean, is itself also silly uh, when you think of it. If, in fact, everything is the continual, repeated, and protean creation of his mind, so is his mind. So is he. So once again, and, a, and I think a more deeply philosophical way than the line about prosperity, be sure, sure to prosper than prosperity could have assured us, once again, Satan utters what becomes a philosophical commonplace, which is totally nonsensical, circular, and rotten at its core, but it sounds good. And that's what makes the satanic figure, or one of the things uh, that makes the satanic figure uh, of the first uh, two books so compelling uh, for so many.
2: I'm thinking of something that I often think about with um, characters or narrators who earn the label quote unquote unreliable, and oh, that yeah, is sorry. the extent to which they are deceptive on the one hand and delusional on the other. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it. sounds like, based on your response, that Satan is is much more on the deceptive side than the deluded side.
0: No, it's, I, the well, it's the it's same. It's the same. It's the same. It's the same. He, you know, uh, he believes what he says. Yes, that's so what I he, in so as there is a he and a set of beliefs that can be for a moment isolated, and that's a question. He believes uh, what he says. In later books, even as early, late as book five of Paradise Lost, the reasoning by which he is buttressing his position and advancing his claims becomes much easier to see through. There's a point in book five, uh, which is a flashback recreating the original revolt of Satan and those who followed him. Uh, And of the angels who follow him, only one wakes up the next morning and realizes that he's been duped uh, and that he shouldn't be in this place with these people. And his name is Abdiel. Uh, And he rises. uh, This is a very typical Miltonic heroic moment. The single figure who rises rises. Uh, with all kinds of hostile voices and postures around him and nevertheless speaks the truth. So he rises and he says, what are you guys doing? How can you revolt against the creator who made you? That's one part of his argument. How can you revolt against the creator who made you? What Satan says in reply, and this is quite literal. This is not the exact line, but it's very close. I don't remember being made. What are you talking about? Now think about that. That doesn't make any sense either. How would you remember being made if your being made was at the end of a process? You're being, you're, you're nothing, and then you're made. So while you were nothing, you couldn't be remembering that you were being made. It's just silly. And so he says, we were self-created, self-begotten, self-raised. That's what he says. I'm self, we are, we, the uh, angels now devils, are self created, self begot, self raised. Now, that last one, self raised, is a v- typical Miltonic pun. And I say typical Miltonic pun because unlike a Shakespearean pun, which keep it, keeps opening up uh, like, uh, you know, li- li- like uh, uh, exploding firecrackers. Uh, into vista after vista, Milton's puns uh, are very pointed and uh, moral and philosophical. So when he has Satan claim that he is self-raised, he is counting on his reader to know that the sound raised is a homonym with three meanings. Raised in the sense of elevated, raised R-A-Z-E-D, in the sense of destroy and the colloquial R A S E D, which was short in the 17th century and still is in some places for erased. Mm -hmm. So when Satan says, I am, we are self-raised, he's telling the truth, although he doesn't know it because what he is by virtue of the very claim that he is making to be separate and independent uh, of God, uh, what he is is self-raised he has destroyed himself cut himself off from the source of being and and has in fact erased himself and at a certain point in the poem the epic voice uh, tells us that satan had another name in heaven it wasn't satan but it's now disappeared from the records no trace of it remains he's been erased he's been raised with a z one of the
2: miracles of milton's poetry in my opinion, which I encountered in Surprised by Sin, is his ability to depict time and space. I mentioned before that this book is part of a series on hell. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what sorts of imagery of the Judeo-Christian hell was Milton working with when he imagined the cosmos that he created? I mean, that
0: I, No, that's not a question I'm afraid I can answer for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, there are people, there are other Miltonists, uh, uh, but I'm not uh, one of them, who would be able to try it out very quickly, the analogs that Milton may have been uh, working with. But the question about the imagery, when Milton is describing either hell or heaven, he has a problem uh, of, of representation. And the problem is very simple. Human language can describe neither heaven nor hell. Uh, Because both states, the condition of being absolutely alienated from God, or the condition of being absolutely one with God, are not apprehensible by the human, who is in this kind of middle space, in this middle space, where, at least according to Milton, he or she must make do with the images of the world that register on their senses at the same time that they are supposed to know that that's not all there is. There's something beyond, something beyond in a terrible sense, hell, and something beyond in a magnificent sense, heaven. So what Milton does is devise a way of using language that simultaneously offers descriptions and in the very course of offering them, erases them. So that he gets to describe things that are indescribable by offering descriptions that, if, that, if, that in effect, fall apart at the end. Now, uh, I can give you one example. There are many of them. So when Satan gets up from the burning lake in book one, uh, and he's going to a place where he can rally his troops for a second attempt uh, at defeating God, he's described in the following way. He's described as walking on the burning lake with precarious steps. And then he's described as carrying a spear. And here's the lines. His spear, to equal which the tallest pine hewn on Norwegian hills to be the mast of some great admiral so you get that? He's describing this spear. He's telling you that it's equal to the tallest pine hewn on Norwegian hills to be the mast of some great warship. And then the last half line takes it away were but a wand. That is, he's telling you that the comparison that he has been crafting in the first two and a half lines is inapposite and inadequate, cannot just do justice to its subject. In effect, he's saying this is a comparison that can't be really made, although I'm making it and inviting you for two and a half lines to think that I have made it, and then I'm pulling the rug out from you and from un- out from under my descriptive verse. He does that all the time when it is revealed that that the uh, representational effort uh, that he has been mounting is an impossible and a specious one. It's quite extraordinary.
2: Shifting gears slightly here from the poem to Milton's life and times, um, he's obviously writing a theological epic, but he's also responding very passionately to his political situation. And so I wonder if you could elaborate on the crises and conflicts, both theological and political, that preoccupied Milton during his life and how, Paradise Lost responded to them.
0: Well, Paradise Lost is a presentation of them. Uh, for Milton, the question always was that is as, as it is for uh, many uh, dedicated Christians, the question is how to first know the will of God and then conform your behavior to that will. And Milton believes that uh, one of the consequences of the fall is that man's ability to discern God's will has been clouded uh, by the perceptual weakness that is part of our inheritance from Adam and Eve, conventionally called original sin. So the original sin infects the uh, infects the damaged human uh, psychology. Uh, and uh, psyche, and makes human beings incapable of directly apprehending the true path and then following it. The result is that all of life for Mil- is uh, for Milton, an attempt to discern that true path and, and the action of trying to discern it is largely a negative one. That is, it's identifying false paths that have offered themselves to you, either from your own mind or uh, by others, and to discard them and keep refining your vision and refining your vision so that you can always be standing insofar as it is possible, attached to the will of God. So that's the Miltonic posture, the one uh, that he hopes. In a world beset by temptations and uncertainties, How do you find and hew to uh, the true path? There's no formula. There's no recipe. So all that you can do is keep on trying and be alert, as alert as you can, uh, to the false paths, the false gods, the delusive lights that offer themselves. So going back to that image that I described to you, a few moments ago of the uh, uh, angel Abdil, the only one in the satanic host who sees what's going on and stands up uh, and leaves. Uh, he of course had been seduced into membership the night before in ways that are never described, but he has the presence of mind to look around, figure out that he's in the wrong place, and then take the heroic single lone action that is necessary to extricate himself. Now Milton himself uh, as a political being lives in a state where there are all kinds of contending authorities, what he would consider uh, illegitimate uh, political forces and figures at work. Since Milton believes so strongly in the integrity of one's personal choice to remain true to the best of one's being. He is always resistant to any kind of regime or program, whether it's political or theological, that would impose on the individual mind a in advance single one way. So what Milton does throughout his career, both as a poet and as a Christian, is he keeps leaving, that is, He keeps leaving organizations that he was once a part of. His father was a Catholic. He was not himself a Catholic. He was what we would now call an Episcopalian or an Anglican. But he saw early on that the members of the Anglican church, the clergy, what he called the new presbyters, were, and this is a line from his poetry, just old priests writ large. That is, he saw that that wasn't the way either. So he left that. Uh, Then then he proceeded along and became some kind of congregationalist. But then he found that that too uh, was impinging uh, on his entirely free choice to identify the source of his being and then become allied with it. So in the end, it has been said, and I think said with some force, that Milton became a church of one. The thing about Milton, and this is uh, I think a truth about him that even those who have difficulty reading him or who dislike reading him uh, will testify to is that his presence is distinctive. You always feel the pressure of his personality and his vision in everything of his that you read. There's, uh, it's not, it's not, there's nothing kaleidoscopic about Milton. There's nothing generous about Milton. He's a hard, flinty son of a bitch. Um, he has absolutely no quarter to give to those he thinks are wrong. Um, he's not tolerant in any way. He is characteristically hard-edged and unapologetic about it. He's not above um, questioning his God and a assaulting his God, uh, as he does in a a sonnet, which begins with the great line, avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints. Think of that, avenge, O Lord, thy slaughtered saints. In that line, there's a really uh, big accusation. Hey, they were your saints. They were doing your work. Why were they slaughtered?
1: It sounds like that hard edge is something that appealed to you personally. Is that one of the levels you connected with Milton on?
0: Yeah, it's the stringency of thought. Though as far as stringency of thought in 17th century poetry, Milton is a softy compared to George Herbert. George Herbert. Now there's someone whose stringency of thought is literally breathtaking. It takes your breath away uh, every time. But Milton was pretty tough. He just wasn't Herbert.
2: Speaking of strong personalities, um, you know, you were, you've been in the field of Milton studies for <laughs> half a century and more, um, more, more. And more than that. I, I wonder if you could um, give your assessment of the, of the diversity of approaches that have been brought to Milton um, and, and what, where you see the state of the field as it enters the 21st century.
0: I don't know very much about the field now because as some of you may know, I've been really a professor of law almost exclusively, uh, since 2004 or five. Uh, So I haven't been teaching uh, poetry um, and haven't been teaching Milton since then, which I uh, regret in in some ways because it's it's a great pleasure. Uh, But I will say that the uh, Miltonists that I knew when I was active uh, in the field were an extraordinarily varied group, but they were all uh, allied in their intense dedication to the poet, uh, and in, uh, to uh, every aspect uh, of his art. Uh, so when Wordsworth begins a sonnet, Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour. Uh, every Miltonist I know will say that uh, in his or her uh, private or perhaps public statements. Milton, thou shouldst be living at this hour. Why? Because Milton is a poet of art argument, philosophical deliberation. no question is too difficult for him and he doesn't wish to avoid any of the intricacies of those questions whether the question is free will, the nature of uh, the, 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 the nature of kingship, freedom of speech, uh, censorship, uh, the status of women in relation to men and to society, whatever the question is, Uh, divorce, of course, Uh, whatever the question is, he has thought through all of the possible ways of, of, of dealing with it and made extraordinary set of refinements that you as a reader are invited to follow. And that is why reading Milton is an educative experience, not educative in terms of the particular places he comes down on, uh, in this or that argument, but because uh, because of the almost, not almost, because of the athletic exertions he is engaged in and demands of you as a reader. All of the Miltonists I knew, and there are many of them, were co-partners with him uh, in that uh, mode of being. And if I had to give them a word as a group, which would also be a word that I would uh, bestow on Milton, although he doesn't eat any any meat to bestow anything on him, it would be serious. Miltonists are serious. That doesn't mean that they don't have senses of humor, but they are absolutely seriously dedicated to their craft and to the poet.
2: Again, shifting topics a little bit here. Um, our company was founded on the idea that um, even more, even though people are reading more than ever, there's a marked decline in the reading of literature and philosophy. Um, I'm a teacher. I often say it's a crisis of literacy, cultural literacy, and also the ability to read for sustained periods and to interpret difficult texts and so forth. What might account for these problems and what might a solution be?
0: You know, what accounts for the problem are things that are in general very good, like democracy or uh, diversity. That is the opening up of new ways of thinking and the introducing into uh the classroom and in the canon of voices that had not been heard before. It used to be the case that the study of literature was by and large uh, the province of a cultured class of gentlemen with a few women thrown in now and then as oddities. But what you did when you went to Cambridge or to Oxford or to Harvard or to Yale what you did was become and uh, become uh, embedded uh, in a in, in an inherited literary slash philosophical and uh, artistic meaning painting and architecture and, uh, so forth uh, a culture. It was part of what you came out of it, and it was uh, the uh, currency, let's say, of sophisticated dinner parties or other gatherings. In short, it was a class matter. Uh, And that of course is no longer the case. Uh, Literature is now uh, at least theoretically available to members of any class. And anyone can become both a professional uh, uh, performer of literature or professional teacher of literature. And I'm a, you know, a a good but perfectly uh, garden variety uh, example. My father uh, was an immigrant, immigrant from Poland uh, in 1923, uh, when he was uh, 15 years old. Uh, never got beyond uh, the sixth grade. Uh, I was the first person in my family, ex- you know, my 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 primary family, my extended family, ever to go to college, and so it only took uh, uh, in the 20th century one generation to go from immigrant laborer, my father was a plumber's apprentice when he began, from immigrant labor to professor of English literature. Now that's pretty fast. And that's something that, was, and of course, again, I say I'm by, by no means the only example of this, uh, of this small history. Uh, but what that also means is that a certain exclusiveness and what we might call bounded sense of what is culturally relevant has been opened up and exploded. Uh, And there's less and less the sense of a commonly shared set of cultural references and touchstones. So how do you get that back? Or do you want to get that back? Shouldn't we be celebrating that diversity? Shouldn't we we be pleased that the Nobel Prize for Literature was won a few years back by uh, Bob Dylan? Uh, shouldn't we welcome all kinds of art, including performance art and wrapping your body in chocolate and other kinds of things that happen that are not, shouldn't we? Well, I'm not going to answer that question uh, because I'm too old to answer it. I'm, I'm too much uh, a product of the earlier generation. But I must say that I, I've, I've come to agree uh, with an old friend of mine whose work you may, uh, some of you may know or have heard about name is E.D. Hirsch, a longtime professor of English literature at the University uh, of Virginia, who back in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, or middle 80s, uh, came up with something which he called cultural literacy. Some of you may, and he, uh, which was, uh, he, he provided lists of texts and anecdotes and historical, uh, historical stories that everyone should know. Because what that meant is that when you and others met uh, for the first time, you'd have a common, uh, a common reservoir of cultural e- e- information to trade on and share in. So he thought that cultural literacy could should be part of the uh, uh, curriculum, the grade grade one through twelve curriculum, and perhaps of the college curriculum uh, too. That Uh, has not had the success that he had wished for it. Also, we've had the decline of the core core curriculum. Now, the core curriculum is an exclusivist notion. It's an elitist notion. And elitism has, for many good reasons, uh, been under a challenge uh, and attack now for many decades. But if you have a core curriculum, again, you're creating a community of persons who can come together even if they have never seen each other before, and converse uh, and exchange cultural tokens, as it were. When I came to the University of Pennsylvania as a freshman, uh, in, you've got to get ready for this, uh, in 1955, quite, quite a while ago, in 1955, I had roommates, three uh, roommates in a little pod, all of whom from different parts of the country. But we had all read the same four Shakespeare plays. We had all read the first canto of the Fairy Queen uh, and books one, two, four, and nine of Paradise Lost. Two poems by uh, Alexander Pope, usually The Rape of the Lock and something else, uh, and so forth. We all did that. Every single one of us had the same education. Now, it was very selective. In the universe of things that might have been read, all that we together had read occupies perhaps zero, 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 one percent. Not inclusive, entirely elitist, constructed, imaginary, but absolutely effective.
1: When you look around right now, do you see Milton? Do you see the same issues he was dealing with in our society today?
0: Oh, sure. Milton was concerned as we are. On how to build a society um, in which non virtuous actions will be eliminated and virtuous action uh, will be promoted. The Motonic solution to this enduring political problem would not really uh, be a force or influential today. Milton was one of those who believed that if you could get the inner being of persons right, then the external actions that issued from them would be right. So for example, he said in a famous quotation in one of his prose tracks, in order to write a true poem, a man must himself be a true poem. Now that's not the exact quote, but it's something like that. By which he meant you can't write of admirable and praiseworthy praiseworthy things, and this is a pretty close quote, unless there is something admirable and praiseworthy. In you, uh, so the Milton regime is the regime of cleaning up, regenerating, revivifying, reforming the hearts. Uh, this is, a, of course, a political phrase. The hearts and minds uh, of his reader, readers. He thought that he could, and he says this in uh, one of his prose pamphlets, *The Reason of Church Government*. Thought he could inculcate the seeds of virtue in the English people. Uh, by teaching them how to know themselves through his verse. Uh, and again, the idea is get the inner geography right, that is the geography of the soul uh, and the heart, get the inner geography right, and the actions that come, uh, that issue, uh, will be themselves right, uh, virtuous, and beneficial. That's not going to fly today. Milton was a consummate liberal, not liberal in the political sense, has nothing to do with the political positions that are sometimes identified uh, with the left wing of the Democratic Party, but rather Milton was a liberal in the sense that he believed in the individual capacity for human choice and the obligation of any government, the first obligation of any government to protect that capacity for choice. Uh, and not to impose on free uh, men uh, and women uh, choices that were not truly theirs. And so he says things like, this is from Pajitica, a man can be a heretic in the truth, by which he meant, if you say something and it is in fact true, but you're not saying it because you think it's true, but you're saying it because your mother said it, or your favorite teacher said it, or the Pope said it, then it's not really yours. Uh, it's absolutely necessary, in Milton's view, that your relationship to the truth be intimate and immediate. Because again, if it is, then your actions will intimately and immediately be truthful. And that's why he is such a champion of the freedom of uh, freedom of speech or freedom of publishing, actually. All the possibilities must be put before the choosing mind. Um, And uh, it it would be wrong uh, to dictate in advance uh, the possibilities that the mind uh, could survey. Uh, So that's that's very consistent of him. Another way to put this, Milton believed in character, and he believed that without character, good deeds could not be produced.
1: And I think we've got one last question coming from Shaista. Hi, I'm Shaista. How you doing? I'm finding you. Um, I want to tie it back into your earlier um, thought about prosperity versus prosperity, meaning nothing. I was wondering, could Milton have meant a comparison of his meanings, i.e. financial prosperity or literal prosperity and virtuous or pious prosperity? Many depictions of the devil account for his enticement of man with worldly possessions or so desire so do you think it could be spiritual versus literal prosperity it is in
0: a way and there's a there's a wonderful scene in book one uh paradise lost which i think makes your point and that is uh when the angels are finally roused by the devils the fallen devils fallen angels the devils aroused by milton uh from uh the burning lake uh he takes them to a, a place and uh uh, he has the uh, chief architect of the uh, devilish host uh, named Mulsibur build uh, an extraordinary palace. That is, build is not even the word because he kind of just wills it into being, um, you know, a, and, and there it is as if it were, you know, the most uh, glorious of special effects now available to us um, in the movies. Uh, and it, it said, uh, the person who most admires this structure says, look, look at this. Uh, in fact, look at the marvelous lighting. Look at the marble floors. Uh, look at the bejeweled altar. Look at all of this that we've done. Okay, you got it? And then he says, what can heaven show more? And he really means it. Because for him, the identification of what is valuable is to be found in what literally glitters. That is in the superficial uh, glories uh, that the devilish architect was able to create in an instant. But for Milton, the true glory is the glory of the upright heart. And so that's why he ends Paradise Lost by having the archangel Michael uh, say to uh, Adam, you know, uh, you're leaving this paradise. See, Adam and Eve are being booted out of paradise. Uh, he, he's saying, don't think that you've lost everything because what you've lost or can gain should not be identified with a particular local place. And he refers to paradise on the way out as, quote, this rock, This rock. He says, but if you follow the ways of God, now he he tells uh, Milton, you shall in time have a paradise within. You shall in time have a paradise within. And that's the Miltonic lesson. The paradise within, which allows you, because you have it, to really achieve the true form of Milton's false The mind, it's his own place and can make a hell of heaven or a heaven of hell. If you have achieved the paradise within, that paradise, in fact, configures every scene that you then enter, which will become a reflection of the paradise that lives within you. So all you have to do is achieve the paradise within. Now, that sounds easy. But of course, as we all know, nothing could be harder.
1: Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. A very special thanks to Stanley Fish you can find all of his books on Amazon and any of his numerous articles just by googling Stanley Fish. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, most Books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us, And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.